you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 29 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, good to see you as always. And last week, you will recall, we had a first for this show as we had a serving High Court judge as a guest in studio. Mr Justice Richard Humphreys came in to give us his views and the views of the judiciary in general to the recently published Maynooth University research, which suggested that Wikipedia was featuring in Irish High Court judgments. Mark, you did the honours in relation to that interview and you did a fantastic job. You're very kind. Great interview. It was very interesting. I bet a few Mm. people tapped you on the shoulder during the week to say... It captures the imagination, this stuff. Excellent job. Excellent job. I'm sorry I didn't get there myself, but no need. You did a wonderful job on it. Well, today we're going to take a look at the role of the first national language and the law. And I am delighted to say we're being joined by one of our leading abkhoja osgeilge, Dahi McCorhick. Dahi, as we know, is a great champion of the language and has been in a number of landmark decisions where the Irish language has been central. However, as he points out, he presents cases in both Irish and English, so please do not adjust your sets. Had to put in that gag. That's as old as the hills. And amongst other things, we are going to talk to him about the wonderful opportunities for law graduates who are fluent Osgeilge. Mark, you pushed for this. This is a great interview. Yeah, I find it interesting. I mean, particularly because the Irish language is now one of the official European Union languages. So there are now opportunities in Brussels and Luxembourg for fluent law graduates. And as Dahi himself points out, there is effectively a better service in the legislative process for Irish, the Irish language than there is in Ireland. Wow. OK, so no, we're really looking forward to that interview. But first, Mark, we're going to discuss three cases which you have identified on the Decisis website. Our first case concerns a debt settlement arrangement that had been approved by the Circuit Court. The arrangement had been managed by a personal insolvency practitioner, but was then challenged by a number of the creditors who claimed to be owed money. This is the case of Remansour. It's a decision of Mr Justice Sanfi in the High Court. Yeah, so the personal in- insolvency legislation was brought in as an alternative to bankruptcy. And it's basically where you can get the creditors to uh, to effectively kind of agree to take a proportion of the assets of the creditor of the of the debtor. They can avoid bankruptcy. And generally speaking, you are advised by a personal insolvency practitioner. Now, what happened in this case was that the personal insolvency practitioner had been in co- correspondence with a number of creditors and had then arranged the debt settlement agreement on a single creditor-only basis, where effectively only one creditor was being paid. Now, he said that he had given the appropriate notice to the other creditors, but they said that although they'd been in correspondence with him, he hadn't issued the appropriate formal notice. And so the circuit court approved the debt settlement arrangement Mr. Justice Sanfi said, no, that's not acceptable, that okay. if you, you need to set, set, send the appropriate notice in order that the creditors know to send in the relevant details of the debt that they claim to be owed. And so he set it aside. OK, that's a very important decision. Well, the second case is kind of an extraordinary one, Mark. It involves litigation between a number of parties, most of all whom are Russian-owned, but the plaintiff brought the proceedings here in Ireland. An earlier decision by Mr Justice David Barneville allowed them to join a Russian-based company to the proceedings, but the company then sought to set aside an order, saying that the proceedings against the company had already concluded in Russia. So big Russia 
input into this case. This is the case of Trafalgar Developments Limited against Mazepin. It's a high court decision of Mr. Justice MacDonald. Yeah, I find this case pretty extraordinary. There, there have been a number of judgments concerning this litigation. And it concerns what I think is called share rating, where basically a minority shareholder seems to, seeks to use unlawful methods to try and get the majority shareholders to sell their shares at an undervalue. Now, this is a Russian case, effectively. They claim that basically that the the, the um, defendant in this case and the associated companies used all sorts of unlawful means in Russia to, to subvert the criminal law process, to subvert the judiciary um, in order to uh, obtain shares in a Russian company. And one of the defendants is Irish-based. Now, they then, having brought this, the plaintiff then sought to join this other company, that is Russian-based, to the litigation. Um, Mr. Justice Barneville approved it, and then the company sought to set it aside. And I mean, what, what I find, I mean, I'll just read out this paragraph, if you don't mind, because what it says here is, as Barneville J. observes at paragraph 296 of his judgment, the vast majority of the factors in play in these proceedings point in the direction of Russia as the appropriate forum. Virtually all of the relevant events occurred in Russia. Most of the witnesses are likely to be Russian. Many of them are based in Russia, at least on the defendant's side. Most of the documents are in the Russian language. Many of the issues require evidence to be given as to Russian law and as to Russian civil and criminal procedure. Those considerations apply with somewhat greater force in respect of Kai, which is the case, the company in this case. Its involvement in the proceedings will require some additional Russian evidence to be given that was not contemplated at the time Barneville J heard the equivalent application by the Russian UCCU defendants. But they then go on to say, nonetheless, they still think that Ireland is the appropriate forum. Basically because... But Dennis MacDonald said no. This has no, been already resolved in Russia. Isn't that what he said? No, no. He says that the, the, the company should be joined and that, sh that the, this issue should proceed to be heard in Ireland against this particular case. Okay. And I mean, it looks like it's going to be an absolutely massive piece of lit litigation that involves a huge number of Russian parties concerning Russian issues of Russian fact and law. Wow. Okay. That sounds like it's going to be a very interesting one. Absolutely. And finally, a case where a party issued proceedings then registered a Liz pendants against the folio of the defendant's property. The defendants sought to set the Liz aside on the basis that they had never even been served with the proceedings. This is a decision of Ms. Justice Roberts in McQuaid versus Start Mortgages, DAC. It's a high court decision. And Mark, before we go anywhere, will you explain to our listeners what is a Liz pendants? So Liz pendants is basically the Latin for litigation pending. And it is a fairly standard notice that you put on the folio of a property that is the subject of litigation. So if, for example, you owned a piece of property and I claimed to have an interest in the property that you were disputing, then I would, re then I, if once I'd issued proceedings against you, I would register the Liz pendants on the folio of the property. Now, obviously, the result of registering the Liz pendants on the folio is that nobody else is going to buy it. So the danger is that somebody can issue proceedings, register a list of pendants in the folio, which makes this property effectively unsaleable, and then do what the plaintiff did in this case, which is to not proceed with the proceedings. And in this case, they hadn't even served the proceedings for 18 months. Now, there's obviously the danger that that can be done on a malicious basis, and I don't know what happened in this case, but but the, the, the problem is that if somebody issues proceedings, registers at the Liz, and then doesn't proceed with the proceedings, the other side then has a piece of property that they can't sell, they can't deal with, they can't mortgage, while the other side is doing nothing in relation to the proceedings. So what happened in this case was that the defendant entered an appearance solely for the purpose of applying to set aside the proceedings and said, you haven't issued the proceedings within 18 months, this list pendants has to be set aside. 
And Miss Justice Roberts accepted that. She, she agreed said, with that. Absolutely. Free it yeah. up. Yeah. Let them be able to do something with it. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, back shortly with Barrister Dohi McCorhick. Silence in the Fifth Court. So we're delighted to be joined today in the studio by Dahi McCorrig, who is a barrister and for several years has been teaching the Irish language courses in the King's Inns. Um, also a member of Forest Nagelga. So Dahi, do I have that right? You do indeed, yes. Okay, fantastic. So Dahi, first of all, you're obviously very much involved in both the Irish language in relation to the legal system. Could you give us a little bit of background? What was your degree and what led you to become a barrister and just sort of specialise in that area? A nice easy question to begin with. I was always interested in the law. When I was growing up, we had um, we had all four stations and I was very much um, taken with Crown Court. It used to be broadcast uh, at lunchtime. And well, everyone fantasises about doing a total uh, killer cross-examination, having seen it on sure. television, but I was even more fond of Rumpole. Yeah, that, that's not much of an excuse to get into the law, but I did. Um, I wanted to do law and Irish. Any place you could do that was Galway. And that was done by doing a, a BA in Irish and law and then an LB afterwards. But I got sidetracked to do uh, an MA in, in Irish and I did an Erasmus in, um, in Wales. So I learned a, a bit of Welsh and it's actually closer to my mother's house when I was in Wales than I was in Goa. Because you're a Wexford man. Being a Wexford man, yeah. And we kind of grew up with Welsh on the television as well. So that kind of strange. So we're all victims of a background that things that you, you see in your childhood do tend to affect you um, sure. during the whole of your life. The year as president of the, of the student union, so I really milked Galway for everything I could get out sure. of it. And I really enjoyed myself there, perhaps perhaps too much, but I spent a, a long time in Galway getting the um, BA, MA and the LLB. And then uh, I went to King's Inns and did my BL over two years on a part-time basis. I see. And you, you, what year did you get called to the bar? 1998. 1998, okay. 1998 so yeah. So they're celebrating it now up and down the country, <laughs> exactly. you may have seen all the documentaries about it, yeah. yeah. So uh, you're then, I think you, you've you certainly been very much involved in litigation concerning the Irish language, am I right? There's, there's well, a about of, a, well, I've done other things as well. Sure, you know, of course. Yeah. A bit more, mm. They tend to be very interesting and tend to be a bit high profile as well, you know, because you're dealing with J.R. Sheen with cases that, Sometimes up in the Supreme Court, we had the the honour to be uh, the first case in Irish brought before the Court of Justice, the European Union. Now, again, somebody would have done it, but it's just nice to be there to be there first. So those are interesting cases. But I mean, uh, about uh, between a, a third and a quarter, of the work would be true Irish. And that's yeah. because um, I would have been involved in the, or I was, that's a very dumb thing to say, I would have been. I was involved very much in the in the Irish language movement in college. And people would know me and if they wanted to do something true Irish, I'd be the person who gets the, the nod or, or I'd sure. be approached or yeah. say something arose in relation to, say, Irish and education. And uh, say, if, uh, when, for example, the Irish medium schools were, um, I put it very, um, very softly, put under pressure to abandon early total immersion, um, you know, people would have given me a ring and asked for advice. And then, you know, from, from that, you'd find yourself taken into cases. Sure. So I suppose the most, the most recent decision of significance concerning the language is the case of Glanmore, Ch- uh, Cave, Chiranta and the Minister for Housing, which is the decision where the Supreme Court um, made certain orders arising from the fact that some primary legislation had not been transposed into the Irish language. And it turned out that there was a 10-year delay in translating legislation, notwithstanding the fact it's a constitutional requirement. Was this something you, that, was, that was, you were aware of or that, uh, that has been the, the matter of a campaign from the sort of Irish language movement? Well, it's all very strange. If you take, if Irish is, a, is the 24th, perhaps, official language of the European Union. Yeah. So all EU law, um, directives, regulations, decisions, they're all published, printed and published in Irish at the same time as the other 23 official languages. Yeah. 
and the sum total of the cost to pay the translators and print it and publishing, etc., is two euros per EU citizen per year. So it, it's never been about the commitment of uh, of resources to it, but the resources have not been committed. Mm. And this was a matter of, of um, a controversy back in the 1920s when the first Chief Justice Hugh Kennedy commented that the bills were being um, passed by the Oireachtas in English only and then afterwards translated into Irish. And he compared and contrasted that with the situation in the other two bilingual Commonwealth countries at the time, um, mm. Canada and South Africa, where um, the bills were published um, bilingually and the so they could be debated bilingually but, and, yeah. and indeed and then of course it, it, the standard legislation has to be better as well because there's something there might be something uh, ambiguous in the English version and then if someone wants to render a version in the second language the question arises well what do you mean by interest is it yes yeah. <laughs> is it space no yeah. which one is it and, and, and that came up recently in the, uh, the 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 Supreme Court decision over the university uh, sentences didn't it I mean oh, they're it, very it, much looking at the Irish language version as opposed to the English language version presumably notwithstanding the fact that it, it had been passed in English and then translated into Irish yeah because it, it's an official translation so mm-hmm. there'd be tick tacking between the tra- translator's office and, and, and between the AG's office and questions would have been asked what was meant by this but I mean it, it, it's it's very unsatisfactory that time lapses and you're left without a lot of legislation and it makes it more difficult to litigate through Irish and because of that there's less litigation done through Irish I mean, it's called a, you know, the concept of a barrier to market if you make something especially with computer programs if, if you do if you have to do three clicks as opposed to one click there's more less of a chance that you, w- that you won't do it or yeah. there's less of a chance that yeah. you will do it more of a chance you won't do it so if um, if litigating through Irish it becomes uh, slightly more difficult then fewer and fewer people are, are going to do it and, and, and that's the um, that's probably the unwritten agenda what you call the unconscious bias of, of, of the system and it, in, it's, in terms of the kind of the mechanism of translating the legislation I mean it's 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 Rano is am I right Ranogonastrakon, yeah. Leinster House, whose yeah, job it yeah. is to translate. Yeah. And presumably it the the one of the issues at least is that there's a lack of resources that means that there's this ten year delay in translating the, the legislation. Yeah, because for a while there was no delay. Right. You know, in 2006 or so, the, the, the version was coming more or less simultaneously. But the only way to, uh, to counter that is that you start off with the bill. Yeah. And if the bill is available by English, it's debated bilingually and, and uh, the standard of the legislation would be increased. And also people going to litigate and do their business to Irish can do that. And it, it's an, it, it, one of the ironies about Irish being an official EU language is that um, because of subsidiarity and uh, certain provisions in the treaties that I, 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 I can get you, but I don't have sure. them... The hand at the moment, legislative proposals are sent from the Commission to the national parliaments. And if enough national parliaments object uh, on the basis that it's it is a matter which is better dealt with at national level as opposed to union level, it, it triggers certain mechanisms. And, and in, in the end of the day, if sufficient support is found, you can, you can stop the, the measure moving forward. But if a situation where the European Commission sends its, its quote-unquote bills to all the parliaments in the EU, including the Irish Parliament, in the official languages, so the bills from the European Commission end up in the Leinster House Library in Irish and English, yeah. The bills from the Irish government end up in the Leinster House Library in English only. Yeah. So it's it's an unsustainable situation, and a lot of the litigation and and judicial decisions down through the years have been trying to look at it, putting a sticking plaster, or giving people just what they need in the moment to get yeah. over the hump, because that's the way our our system works. But I think that it's kind of indefensible. The idea, I Irish- suppose, the I mean, there would be a lot of people who I mean, you you hear a lot of naysayers who would point out, for example, that there are county development plans that are translated into Irish and that nobody has ever looked at them and that kind of thing, that there's a vast amount of resources put into these (laughs) things. Of course, yes. But, but, uh, you know, is is there a 
misallocation of resources in terms of what gets translated and what doesn't get translated? Well, it's hard or? to see where the resources, the resources are. I mean, if you compare what's done for so little at EU level mm. and that so little is done in Ireland, that it, it, it's, it's difficult to say, well, look at this or look at that. But the, the fact is that the most basic business of any parliament is to legislate mm. and the lex generalis, if you like, is that Irish is the, the, is an official language, as is English. I won't talk about first or second, but we have two official languages. And in any other country with two official languages, even if you look at the Welsh Assembly, uh, all bills are brought forward bilingually. Yep. And we won't see a, a change at the European level. I mean, the, the, the system, the permanent government is quite happy to have Irish as an official European language because it's an in for Irish people into yep. the institutions. Many people start off as translators or lawyer linguists or working those Departments, but once they become permanent, they can move on to policy areas such as mm. agriculture or fisheries or transport and that sort of thing. We've all seen examples of that, and that's um, political. That's human capital or whatever, sure. and that's very important to the state to have that way of getting Irish people into the institutions. But strangely enough, the price to be paid, the price to be paid for that at home is to um, to make the Irish Parliament as as Gaelic, as Irish language friendly as the European Parliament is. Yeah. So it, it's kind of, it's a very strange mentality we have mm. in this country as regards monolingualism, that we're mm. very much out of step with the rest of the European Union and it's, it's something that's, that's going to change in any event. Yeah. Um, we'll come back to the EU opportunities in a few minutes, but i sort of wondering in terms of litigation in Irish, how difficult is it to run a case in Irish? I mean, if, if somebody, either because they're living in the Gael talk and Irish is their mother tongue or, you know, because they're not in the Gael talk but in the, Irish is their preferred language, wishes to bring a case in Irish. Uh, how difficult is that to do? Well, it, it's not that difficult at all because there's plenty of barristers mm. who, who can speak Irish and we can all draft and stand up and uh, and advocate in Irish. The one difficulty we have in the circuit and district court, the courts of local image jurisdiction, is the availability of judges. Yeah. Um, there's never, as long as they've been at the bar, there's never been difficulty in the high courts um, or Supreme Court or indeed now the Court of Appeal they'll always put a court together for you they'll always find a judge with you, for you who'll speak Irish and once you get going it, it's just like bringing a case through English but the difficulty is at the um, in the District Court and the Circuit Court there's a lot of Irish speaking judges there even though the Court of Justice Act 1924 says that District courts uh, District Court judges and Circuit Court judges whose bailiwick includes a girl to the area and should be able to understand evidence in Irish without an interpreter and that would amount to about, say, 20% of judges. And that, that, would, that would fill the gap there, if you like. So it's, it's a question of Irish not being factored in at all. Again, you hear that this used to be the case, say, at the foundation of the state, that you had people who, who, who yeah. spoke Irish been appointed to those courts of local limited jurisdiction. But that seems to have fallen away um, a bit. And the policy seems to be sent someone down from, from Dublin who can deal with the matter in Irish. And that's grand once you get going. So there can be kind of delays... But I wouldn't say there's delays in the system in any event. So it's not that difficult. We have a, a great result there a, a number of years ago, but quite recently, the O'Kiley case saying that if you're litigating to Irish, then you're entitled to a bilingual judge, that you'll be speaking directly to the, to, to the, um, to the judge or to the court, as would someone um, conducting business through, through English. But the other, the other hand that, 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 that's needed to complete the, the clapping motion um, hasn't yet really been put into place, does it say, enough... Um, enough um, judges in the circuit and district court. 
Can I come in there, Dahi? I was getting very, I was getting very nostalgic there as you reminisced on your days in UCG because we go back way back to the nineties, the early nineties. I was there as well, but I didn't realise you were president of the students' union. What, was yeah, that, that was after 19... Ronan Mullen? Was that no, before Ronan? Before Ronan, okay. 1990, 1991. Okay, slightly before I got there. But yeah. uh, you're yeah. always a great champion of the Irish language, and we don't want to put you in a box, Dahi. I mean, <laughs> I, I know been... I, I, you are <laughs> into a box now at this stage. <laughs> I, I know you do. You, you, you practice in all areas, like we. We all do and are brilliant at practicing in all areas. But when I think of you, sometimes I think of you as a tag team with the legendary Seamus O'Toole, well-established senior counsel. The two of you have worked together wonderfully over the years and you've had some big wins. And maybe this is a little unfair. I mean, obviously you're representing clients like we all do when we go into court, but I feel there's a kind of a passion and a zeal in the pair of you to take on certain kind of maybe state bodies, etc., that are not giving due respect to the Irish language. Is that a fair comment to make? Well, that's just the Irish language will... Um, happily just review of course, that, of course of course walk crawls or flies because the state is there to, to serve I, I, the people I, I, have, I have a memory of a case relating to the national toll roads does that ring a bell oh yeah well I mean do you want to there's... tell us about that one um, no because <laughs> I was in it <laughs> well you can talk generally about it the legal principle <laughs> no, that's okay I, I, I was in it but I, I'll say one thing I find very strange about the, the way the national toll roads work and that's this, uh, the way the default mechanism work works that you're dealing with uh, paying a fine which is in the hundreds not the thousands percent of, of what your original levy was going to be. But wasn't there an la- Irish language aspect to the case? Oh there was indeed yeah. And, 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 uh, can you tell us about that? You weren't able to pay your fine in Irish and now you can so happy days. Okay. You know, generally uh, organisations which want to take your money are quite happy to take it in any language that you <laughs> you prefer. So there wasn't um, the issue there was, was, was solved quite quite quickly but I think there's an interesting issue there just in general about the um, if you compare the, the penalties involved as opposed to the penalties that you would be subject to say in a revenue in a revenue matter the percentages are, are, are quite outlandish <laughs> So that's that, that. That's my abiding memory of, of working out what the penalties were. If you if you waited, I think if you were two months later or something like that, they were absolutely astronomical. Okay, so turn my question on its head. Okay, right. How do you, let's say, on your own, in association with someone like Seamus O'Toole or another senior counsel who is proficient in the first language, how do you get a case? Does it? Who does it come from? It usually come from solicitors. Yeah, but who are the solicitors? Will you, will you tell me how that happens? Well, there's a number of solicitors in, in, in well, say for example, in, in Dublin, you'd have um, Tomás Barabasoni, you'd have Prospect Law. Um, it used to be McGeehan and Cole, now it's Prospect Law. And they'd be known in the Irish language community as people um, who can litigate through Irish and can litigate in all courts and at all levels and uh, will take on more or any any type of litigation. There's also uh, Sean Anton de Lapp as well, would, would be well known in Dublin. Sean O'Croole in Galway, you know, the, the O'Connor's in Cork, so Sean O'Connor in, in Donegal. So people, we live in the community, people would know solicitors who would litigate to Irish and, and uh, you, get, you get a phone call and you get papers in the York Newway. And that's the way it happens. And take it from there. And as I said, yourself and Seamus have had great success. In terms of, you said... When you were a young fella and you wanted to be a lawyer and you loved the Irish language, the only way you could put that combo together was by going to UCG in yeah. the West and Galway. I think there are more options now these days, aren't there? Uh, yeah, Cork, uh, UCG started. Yeah, Sean UCC. O'Connell, is it Sean Yeah, O'Connell? Sean O'Connell. It was started by Neil Buttermore. I, I think he's from a legal family or certainly the Buttermers in, 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 in Cork are a well-known legal family and a lot of Irish speakers in the family as well. So he, he combined them and he, he offered the, the course of, of law and Irish. So you do the law mainly through English. Constitutional law is available through Irish and you do subjects in, in the Irish language on top of that. 
And that's spread now to UCD and I think also to UC, well, UCG was always there. And also Maynooth. Maynooth's got a, a very good combination for people who are interested, say, in European institutions because you can do arts and law together as a kind of a double double header. You can do your law degree plus two hour subjects in first year and then one hour subject for your degree. So say if you did um, law uh, plus French and Irish, kept your French for your degree, drop Irish, but do your TEG, do your exam written and spoken Irish, then you are really uh, lined up to take up a job as a, a lawyer linguist, for example, at the Court of Justice. And people doing that job, no matter what language you're, you're, you're dealing with, be it Irish, English, Latvian or, or Maltese, um, people are generally paid between five and six grand a month into your hand, plus your healthcare, plus your pension. So it's very, very attractive. for Very attractive. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you're obviously very involved in the Irish language legal education side of things. Are the opportunities sort of throughout the European institutions and what, what are the opportunities within Ireland for, for people who want to work? I mean, you, you've nam- named a number of solicitors firms. Yeah. I mean, it, it, are, are people crying out for lawyers with Irish language or is it more the sort of the kind of parliamentary draftsman side of things? I think people are calling out for, for solicitors in general. If you talk to any smaller practices, they find it very difficult sure. to, to, to get people. I remember it was, uh, I think it was two or three years ago, it might have been Fry's, had a short um, podcast on the on GDPR, True Irish, mm. for, for Shakta Nagalga, that you will find a concentration of, of, of people uh, in, in large firms who, who speak Irish. And I heard secondhand that one, that <laughs> that a, a partner in one of the big firms told the senior counsel that uh, when they look at people's applications to be apprenticed to her particular large firm, that they look at their Irish results for the leaving cert because it's seen as being a difficult subject. And if someone does well in that, then you think they have a good work ethic. It's a good so that's yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. I mean, mm. Again, I, mean, I, I got a C in Irish in my leaving cert. Mm. I got a D in the intercert. So, I mean... <laughs> you were a late look at you now, John. <laughs> look at you now. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, you can, uh, people say, you know, it, it, it's not taught correctly. Well, fair enough. Yes, like you know, Al- but, Albert Einstein, you know, well, couldn't count or something, could he? But anyway, there you go. I you know? <laughs> well, I, I, I can't really accept <laughs> that comparator. But, um, what about judges? Do we need, uh, you said before that you should be entitled, I mean, and you, you established that principle that you should have a bilingual judge available to you so you can advance your case or scale Is that catered for? Now you say you can always put together a court that will be Irish language capable yeah. and therefore you can advance your case. But but is that, do you feel that that's thought about or that's considered by the state when it appoints judges, that that is something that they have to make provision for? I don't think it is thought about by the state, even notwithstanding what's in, what's in the Act. Now, at the moment, under the um, Official Languages Act, there is a committee set up, an uh, interdepartmental committee set up to give effect to the policy that by 2030, 20% of the entrance to the public service will be proficient in Irish. Now, there's a lot of work to be done in the meantime, at least of all in the education system. But if that were done at judicial level, then the 20% of the, I think at the present, the higher courts, well, I think in the Court of Appeal, the Supreme Court, 20%, you'd have to 20%, but not so much in the high, are the district and, and the circuit. But if you had 20% of the people in the district and circuit courts, uh, 20% of the judges um, bilingual, that would that would satisfy the requirement of the 1924 Act that judges who serve in localities where there are Gaeltaud areas 
would be able to hear evidence and hear cases. Yeah, and, that's, and that's very important. Thinking back over High Court judges where I have been in, let's say, before cases and, and cases Osgeilge came up, Frank Clark was always was yeah, always yeah, a yeah, judge. Yeah. Mary Lafoy. Yeah, Mary Lafoy yeah, was yeah, always a great yeah. champion oh, it's all, it's of the Irish the, language. It's always the clever ones and the posh ones, you know. My answer always, uh, was asked, which judges have Irish? as well, the, the posh ones and the clever ones, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. That's what's my stock answer. You mentioned earlier in the 1920s there was a reference to the Welsh system and I suppose actually sorry you made reference to South Africa and, and Canada, Canada. Yeah. but but I suppose in these islands Wales is a place where there's mo- yeah. most sort of a deep-seated bilingualism yeah, yeah. and obviously in recent years we've heard that in you know an official languages act was finally introduced in Northern Ireland I don't and you you spent time in Wales obviously do you think that's the best practice that's available in relation to that in in relation to bilingualism in these islands the the Welsh system oh, and, and, or yeah. And is there anything we can learn from them? In in the Northwestern European archipelago, as my <laughs> Dick Spring called it once. Well, the thing about Wales is that they've had a bit of a revival, but Wales is as Ireland would have been had we not had a famine. Do you know what I mean? And also because the Reformation caught on in Wales and because Methodist, uh, the Methodist Church caught on very much in Wales, the language had a status within a church, yep. you know, that in, in Ireland... After the Tudor conquest, English became the language of government and it also became the language of the church, very much the Catholic church, the predominant church. Well, Um, Latin was the language of the Catholic church. Well, no, but... And the established church would have been English. Well, they would have been taught through English, even in the Irish colleges abroad, that there was an idea that Irish nationality would be expressed through Catholicism as opposed to any other country where you express your nationality through language. So it's very strange that in Ireland it became uh, something that was expressed through through religion. I think it's something extremely divisive. And uh, you've kind of these um, dog whistle comments by someone like Daniel O'Connell. He said, I'll stand by old Ireland. I think old Ireland will stand by me. And that was a dig at Thomas Davis. And Thomas Davis would have been hit and speak much Irish, but he saw the importance of it. He was Church of Ireland. He was a nationalist. And uh, O'Connell stood more for the people who had seen themselves as the natural leaders of the country who had been disinherited with the William White Ward, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think that needs to be addressed an awful lot more. The way that the natural development of Ireland as a nation was, was arrested very much by sectarianism. And it didn't, it didn't all come from a sense of unionist, what's the word? Co-tailing, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. But it also came from the Catholic side wishing to build up uh, a Catholic nation, which was ex- exclusionary. And I never felt happy with that. And that's one of the reasons that I, I became an Irish speaker, that I wanted to be on the inside of something that I was on the outside of. And I wanted to redefine what Irishness was. And it wasn't, it shouldn't be based on, on religion, it should be based on language and culture. Because with language and culture, that's something that you can grow and it's something that you can you can enrich. And it's something that's, that's non-exclusive. And there's, you got, you got a lot out of me there. I don't know what the question was, but Wales, Wales, Wales. But because just, just, we, just yeah. on that, Dahi, can yeah. I ask you, and as you say, you didn't want to be an outsider, you wanted to be on the inside with the Irish language. But another place you became on the inside was Rathcarn in County Meath. Now, this is probably not related to law, but I mean... That is a fascinating social experiment in Ireland, wasn't it? 1930s, people were transported from the Connemara Gaeltacht, given land in Meath, yeah. in order to spread the language around. You're part of that community now. Yeah, I am, yeah. And I have fantastic neighbours. And I'm very much at home there and they made us feel very welcome. Um, there was lots of, of estates being broken up in the Midlands and land given to people from, from the West at the time. And the idea was was mooted by uh, Martin O'Kine and, and other, others in, in South Connemara that we lost some of that. So instead of people having to go to 
to Springfield, Massachusetts or to go to Birmingham or to Leeds that they could go to Meath and, and set up a, a new life there. And it, in a way, it's it's a, it's miraculous that the, that the language has survived and, and as strong as it is in, in Rakharan. And it, it's a community that very much sees itself as being an Irish-speaking community. And that the mentality is more akin to what I've seen in Wales, that they would see the languages define themselves as opposed to other local markers of identity. But uh, yeah, no, it, 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 it's a great place, yeah. great place to raise no, kids. fascinating, absolutely yeah. fascinating. Okay, well, we've, we've talked to you about your, your career and your activism in the Irish language and your wonderful legal career. We have a question. Right. Dolly, at the end, have you thought about a book that you'd like to well, I th- I tell our it. listeners about? Oh, I was uh, thinking about a film. Oh, well, even uh, film is even yeah, better. Yeah. We prefer movies. Well, I, I, too, I, I do films now. That for, for many years, my favourite film was, it's Gabriel Byrne, the gangster one. Miller's, oh, Miller's Crossing, Miller's Crossing, Miller's Crossing, Crossing, Miller's Crossing. Yeah, the Coen Brothers. Yeah, yeah. I like anything by the Coen Brothers. I suppose it had the Irish, it had the Irish um, <laughs> twist of it. It had a bit of John McCormick and Danny Boy, which I think is very much tongue in cheek. So I very much enjoyed. It. I had to watch it twice to get what was going on. <laughs> There was a lot, of, a lot of backstabbing in it. But my absolute favourite film now at the moment is The Grand Budapest Hotel. That I have not seen. Yeah, no, it is absolutely fantastic. And it's kind of really... And is there a legal team in it? There's there, there's a will and a codicil and a second copy of a second will. <laughs> they were proving a will in terms of a copy. We've all done that. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, so the Grand Budapest Hotel. You really enjoyed that, Dahi. No, you're very welcome. Thank you. Garamagad. Oh, no, fine, Sir The fifth court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Barrister Dahi McCorrig, for coming into us today and discussing the first national language and the law. Mark, I really, really enjoyed that interview. Yeah, it's an important issue. I mean, I think people fall on two sides. There are people who think the Irish language is neglected and the people mm-hmm. who think that it's a, that, that it's an undue burden on their, on what they have to do. But I think certainly, I think there are a lot of people who feel that the state doesn't give a sufficient yes, support absolutely. to people who want and to litigate the, the passion that Dahi has for it is yeah, fantastic absolutely. and he's just wonderful and he advances it and he's there for all colleagues to help them with it. He's just brilliant. He really yeah. is brilliant. So I would also like to say a big thank you to our producer Conal O'Moroin and to the Dublin South Podcast Studios and David for his wonderful work in recording this show. And as always, if you have any comments or any topics you would like us to discuss, please get in touch on our website. And, you know, Give us some feedback, guys. We are looking for feedback at the moment. We're kind of thinking things out again a little bit, Mark, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think, it, you know, there's always room for improvement. We have a formula that we think works, but we don't necessarily know if all of our listeners agree with us. We Let's have very see. loyal listeners, there's no mm. doubt about yeah. it. And people are always just saying very complimentary things mm. about the show. But yeah. you know what? We want to grow and develop. Isn't that, yeah. isn't that what it's all about? Yeah. So we are definitely open to suggestions yeah. from our listeners out there. Anyway, from me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.